Welcome to Nationwide Market Insights for October 5th, 2022. The quarterly Nationwide Market Insights report for Q4 2022 is now available, featuring our commentary and insight into the economy and financial markets. In today's podcast, we are fortunate enough to have Nationwide's Deputy Chief Economist, Brian Jordan, who will walk us through the NMI quarterly report, shining a spotlight on key pages from the report, and providing additional perspective. To view or download the quarterly report while you listen to this podcast, visit nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. So Brian, thanks for joining us today. Let's begin this discussion with the decline in the financial markets, which has been unusually large this year. The chart on page six shows some overwhelming evidence of this. So Brian, does this mean that we're in a recession or a recession is on its way? So one of the overarching themes that we've talked about in the NMI over the last several quarters is this theme of an accelerated cycle. The economy recovered more quickly than it typically does, at least in recent decades, coming out of a recession in 2020. Inflation took hold quicker than it typically does, coming out of out of the downturn a few years ago. The Fed tightened quicker than it typically does or typically has in recent decades in this cycle. The labor market recovered more, more rapidly. And we're seeing the same thing in, in the equity market. We've seen at the outset of this Fed tightening cycle, a fairly big pullback, much larger as we show here on page six than the declines we normally see in advance of recessions. So you can see as of the end of the quarter, we were down by 25.2% on the S&P 500. The average decline in a pre-recessionary period has been just 7.6%. And prior to This year, we had never had a pre-recessionary decline of more than than 20%. We had never gone into a bear market in the pre-recessionary period. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean we're necessarily heading for a recession itself. We have had bear markets that have not coincided or not preceded economic downturns. There was one in the early 1960s, one in the mid-1960s, and then very famously one in the late 1980s, punctuated by the stock market crash in 1987. So it is a very big warning sign, a very big red flag that a recession could be coming. It's not necessarily a sign that a recession is guaranteed. What it also tells us is that a lot of bad news is already priced in, whether the economy is going into an outright downturn or not. A lot of bad news, even if it were to be a full-blown contraction, is already priced in here. And if we take a look at page seven in the deck, we see a very similar story. Not only has the decline been deep in this cycle, if this is truly a pre-recessionary period, but it's also come early if it's a pre-recessionary period. So historically, as we show on page seven, the average lag between the outset of a bear market or a correction and the outset of a recession in the economy has been about eight months. Now the stock market, the S&P 500, peaked in early January of this year. So we're now nine months 
into this stock market pullback. And as we'll show later in the deck, we're still not quite close to a full-blown recession in the economy. So it's been a deep downturn. It's been an early downturn, again, reflecting an accelerated an accelerated cycle here. A lot of bad news being priced in early, much earlier than normal in this cycle. So we'll move from there on to page nine and we'll look forward here. We've looked back in, in the first couple of charts. We'll turn to page nine and look forward as to what happens after the S&P 500 hits bear market territory. And here you can see that historically, after we hit the minus 5% mark, after we hit the minus 10% mark, after we hit the minus 15% mark, we tend to see declines, continued declines in stock prices. After we hit the 20% threshold, that, that bear market threshold though, one year later on average, the S&P is higher, a little bit over 7%. And after we hit the minus 25% threshold, which we did in, in late September, on average, the S&P is up by over 14% a year later. So we're getting to the point, we have gotten to the point where if, as we look out one year, we should start to expect a better outcome. Well, the bond market has been a driving factor behind this volatility. On page 15, we can see how dramatic this downturn has been. Uh, looking at page 15 with us, can you tell us more about what we see here? So again, this is the idea of the accelerated cycle. We've seen an accelerated path in, in the equity market, and we've seen an accelerated path in the fixed income market as well. So here we're looking at changes in two-year and 10-year treasury yields during Fed tightening cycles. And of course, this Fed tightening cycle is not yet complete. But as we discussed in the commentary, we've already seen a bigger increase in the 10-year treasury yield thus far in this cycle than we did across the entireties of the prior four cycles. The 10-year treasury yield started this cycle at two, just 2.15%. We ended Q3 at 3.83%, so an increase of nearly 1.7 percentage points since the Fed started raising short-term interest rates. That's more than across the entireties of the prior four cycles. And it's not just a function of the more aggressive Fed tightening this time around. In fact, if we go back a few cycles to the 04-06 cycle, the Fed lifted the Fed funds target by 425 basis points in that cycle, more than the Fed has done so far in this cycle. And yet the 10-year move was more muted at that time. So this has been a very big move, a very big sell-off in the Treasury market. Uh, thanks, Brian. Now, the second half of the book looks at the U.S. economy, which has been impacted severely by the pandemic, as the whole world market has. Uh, looking at page 26 to kick things off here, the page says an unusually bifurcated economy. Tell us more what we see here as far as the spread between goods and services. Yeah, this is really a function, still a function of the pandemic. Typically, spending on goods roughly equals spending on services. Now, you can see over the course of the last decade or so that good spending has outpaced, for the most part, spending on services by a modest amount. But in the last couple of years, we've seen a big whipsaw, first in spending on goods relative to services or a sharp increase in the spending on goods relative to services. At one point in 2021, spending on goods on a year-over-year -year basis was exceeding that on services by nearly 18 full percentage points. And again, this is very much a function of the pandemic. In the early stages of the pandemic, during the lockdowns, 
most people weren't traveling. We weren't taking flights. We weren't staying in hotels. We weren't going out to get haircuts, at least not as, as, as often. We weren't having elective medical services. And so services spending was, was curtailed. And yet we had a fair amount of stimulus. The jobs market recovered quickly. And so consumers were flush and they were spending on something. They couldn't spend so much on services. So they spent on goods. They bought cars, they bought laptops, uh, they bought computers, they bought things to enhance their home offices because they were working from, from home. They bought sporting goods, exercise equipment. And so we saw this huge run in, in spending on goods. And again, at one point, outstripping spending on services by close to 18 full percentage points. Well, now that dynamic is in the process of being reversed. It hasn't completely reversed yet, but it's in the process of being reversed. And today, spending on services, now that the lockdowns have ended, the pandemic has, to a large degree, run its course, knock on wood. Spending on services has picked up, and that pent-up demand for goods has died down. So we're seeing the flip here, and spending on services is outpacing that on goods by over seven percentage points uh, on a year-over-year basis. So a huge whipsaw in these numbers, really skewing a lot of economic indicators very much still a function of a pandemic that began over two and a half years ago. Yeah, one thing that's been dominating the news is the Fed's tightening of monetary policy. And you see on page 27 and 28 in the NMI book, uh, and again, for those of you listening, if you want to look along with us here, you can go to nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. Brian, tell us more what you see here on page 27 and 28 about the Fed so we are in the midst of a Fed tightening cycle. It's been an aggressive cycle. A lot of questions about what the Fed is going to do the remainder in the remainder of this year and in 2023, how much more is the Fed going to raise short-term interest rates? But if we look back over, over time, we see that the rate cuts tend to come very quickly on the heels of the rate increases. We could be talking before too long about Fed rate cuts rather than Fed rate hikes. So here we're showing the lag on page 27, the lag between Fed rate hikes, the last rate hike of a Fed tightening cycle, and Fed rate cuts, the first rate cut of a Fed easing cycle. And as you can see on, on page 27, historically, that lag has averaged roughly six months. We did have one case in, in the mid-2000s where it took more than a year from the last rate hike in June of 2006 to the first rate cut in September of, of 2007. But in every other case in modern history, it's been less than a year, and in many of these cases, well under a year between rate hikes and rate cuts. And we often tend to see these rate cuts coming unexpectedly. In, in 2001, for example, the Fed engineered an intermeeting 50 basis point rate cut. It was a big surprise, caught the financial markets off guard. And so sometimes these, these events happen unexpectedly. As the economy slows and as inflation slows over the course of the next year or so, we could very well get into an easing situation after being in an aggressive tightening situation here in 2022. Turning to page 28 from there, we see uh, a chart showing Fed rate hike or rate cut expectations, both rate hike and rate cut expectations, relative to actual changes in the federal funds target. So these are the FOMC forecasts at the end of the previous year 
versus the actual change in the Fed's benchmark short-term interest rate during the year. So for example, if we look at the left-hand side of the page in 2015, at the end of 2014, the Fed expected to raise the federal funds target by 100 basis points. And that's the blue bar here on page 28. In the event, the Fed only raised rates, raised its benchmark interest rate by just 25 basis points. The Fed expected one full percentage point. We only got a quarter of a percentage point of a rate hike in 2015. And you can see other cases across uh, the last seven years, the last eight years, in which the Fed has either underestimated or overestimated uh, the pace of monetary tightening. It's, inter it's interesting, as we look across this chart, the Fed hasn't, in this time frame since 2015, ever forecasted rate cuts. They have forecasted rate hikes. Sometimes they've hiked less than they've anticipated. And as you can see at the right hand, on the right hand bar here, the Fed has, at least in, in, in this past year, tightened policy much more than it anticipated at the end of the previous year. At the, at the end of 2021, the Fed expected to raise rates by 75 basis points in 2022. The year, of course, is not over yet, and the Fed has already pushed its benchmark interest rate higher by 300 basis points, three full percentage points. So the big story here is take the Fed's forecast with a big grain of salt. The Fed is expecting to continue raising interest rates here. The Fed is not expecting to cut rates in 2023. Uh, history says to take that forecast with a grain of salt. It doesn't always play out as the Fed says it's going to play out. Yeah, looking closely at the uh, chart on page 28, there's a huge discrepancy between forecast and actual for the year 2022. But, you know, I think all that was done to help get a hold of inflation which seems to be receding a little bit. So looking at page 29 and page 30, they focus on inflation. Tell us more about those pages. It's a great segue because inflation has been a big driver of Fed policy in, in 2022, perhaps the driver of Fed policy in 2022. And this is a chart that we had in the NMI last quarter in the Q3 edition. Uh, this time around, we've got the same chart, but now you can see a little bit of an inflection point um, not much in the grand scheme of, of the line chart here going back to, to 1940, but you can see a little blip at the end of the chart where inflation has started to move lower. So we may very well be past the peak in the inflation rate, time will tell. But as this chart shows, if we look back at prior spikes in the inflation rate, the early 1940s, the mid-1940s, the early 1950s, early 1970s and then in the late 70s and early 1980s. Once inflation turned in those periods, it turned sharply and we saw very few pullbacks, very few blips back to the upside once it started moving, moving lower. And that's very much a function of the fact that all of these spikes historically uh, that you see on the page here were driven by idiosyncratic factors. In the 1940s, of course, we had World War II driving inflation higher in the early 1950s. We had the Korean War pushing inflation higher. In the 1970s and early 1980s, we had two oil shocks. We had organic inflation in the 70s and 80s as well, um, aggressive Fed easing early in, in the 1970s. 
um, and a very accommodative monetary policy for a time. But on top of that, we had exogenous shocks, two oil shocks in the 1970s. So very much idiosyncratic factors driving inflation to the upside in these cases. As those idiosyncratic factors eased, we saw inflation moving back to, to the downside and moving back sharply. We can say with some confidence that this inflation has also been driven, at least to some degree, I think there's a case to be made to a large degree by an idiosyncratic factor here, obviously the pandemic that began a couple of years ago. And now that the pandemic is fading and supply chains are beginning to heal, uh, we're, we're at, the, at the precipice of what should be a fairly sharp decline in the, in the inflation rate. Time will tell, but we may be beginning to see a disinflation take hold after some very sharp inflation over the course of the past year. So if we turn from, from that to page 30 and see some of these leading indicators that would suggest perhaps more of a decline, more of a disinflation in the inflation rate going forward. We've got two charts here, and these are charts that, that we've shown in the past. On the left-hand side, looking at the number of commodities reported to be in short supply in the ISM survey. These are responses from manufacturing firms, purchasing managers of manufacturing firms, telling us every month which commodities are in short supply. You can see in the summer of last year, these respondents said that there were 36 commodities in short supply. Now, as of September, uh, data that came out very early in October, we see only seven commodities reported to be in short supply. So commodity availability has improved. No surprise, no coincidence. Commodity prices have come down as a result. And then on the right-hand side of the page, we show the yearly change in business inventories. And inventories now rising close to 20% on a year-over-year -year basis. You can see a very sharp line to the upside at the end of, of this chart. This is the fastest increase, the sharpest year-over-year -year increase in business inventories since the 1970s. We've heard a number of companies recently talk about an inventory glut. Inventory gluts mean price cuts, and there's a good chance we're going to see some very generous uh, markdowns going into the holiday shopping season here over the next couple of months. So there are these leading indicators here that would suggest that that little blip we saw on the inflation chart is not a head fake, but probably the beginning of a bigger decline that's going to play out over the next several months. Well, that part about Christmas shopping could be the best news you have this whole report here, Brian. So thank you for that. Um, and in terms of other good news, too, and looking at other signs or indicators, I know there's a lot of things out there we want to point to that might tell us when to expect the next recession. And uh, you've got some great information here on pages 32 and 33. For our audience's benefit, can you tell us more about these pages and how uh, how well they can help us determine when the next recession could be? Sure. So we'll wrap up here with, with a couple of charts on the prospects for recession, both the prospects that a recession may be coming or the potential that we could already be in a recession. We're going to look on these pages at uh, one key leading indicator and then several coincident indicators on, on the next page. So first, on page 32, looking at the yield curve, we've um, had charts on the yield curve in every edition of NMI, going back to the origins of, of NMI. In our view, it is the most important, the most prescient leading indicator. And here on page 32, you see one reason why. Um, here we're looking at um, the trough in the split between the 10-year Treasury yield 
And the Fed funds target, so the benchmark overnight interest rate, the benchmark short-term interest rate, and the benchmark market long-term interest rate, long-term yield. And we can see that in every recession in modern history, this curve is inverted. The federal funds target has moved above the uh, the 10-year treasury yield. And this is important for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it reflects monetary policy relative to market expectations. So when the federal funds target moves above the 10-year treasury yield, that's a sign that the Fed has gone beyond the market's own expectation of growth and inflation moving forward. And so that could be taken as a sign of a restrictive monetary policy. More practically and more importantly, this dynamic reflects where the money is being created or not through the financial system. Banks borrow at the short end of the curve, they lend at the longer end of the curve. When there is a healthy spread between those two things, banks have an incentive to lend and thereby create money. When that spread flattens or inverts, that incentive goes away and the money creation mechanism through the financial system diminishes. Right now, as you can see on this chart, we still have a positively sloped spread between the Fed funds target and the 10-year Treasury yield. That suggests that incentive is still very much there. That also suggests that monetary policy relative to market expectations still is not outright restrictive. Um, and so that would suggest, based on history, that we're not on the doorstep of a recession. Perhaps we're heading in that direction. The Fed is continuing to push short-term interest rates higher, and that would suggest that this spread is going to continue to decline. Perhaps we'll be in a negative situation by the end of the year, but at this point, we're still not quite there yet. Again, a sign that a recession is not imminent. Taking a step back, we'll turn to page 33 and look at coincident indicators. So the, the, the yield curve is the most prescient leading indicator to tell us whether um, a, a recession is coming or at least coming soon. On page 33, we're looking at those coincident indicators that might tell us where we are in the business cycle right now. Are we in a recession right now? And these are the six indicators that we've talked about before on prior podcasts that the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at most closely to determine business cycle turning points, the dates of, of business cycle turning points. So when the NBER says that a recession began, for example, in uh, December of 2007, it's because they looked at these six indicators and on balance, these indicators um, were telling them that, that, a, that a downturn had taken hold, that most of these indicators had moved to the downside by then. Here you can see the average changes in these indicators and the gray bars in the year leading up to recessions. And then on the blue bars, the changes, average changes thus far in 2022. So we can see that five of the six indicators are still growing or have been growing this year. The only, uh, the only indicator of the six that's moved to the downside is real manufacturing and trade sales. The other five have remained in positive territory. And most of them are still growing faster than is typical in a pre-recessionary period. Four of the six are growing faster than the average in the year prior to economic downturns. And the most prescient of these, the labor market indicators, non-farm payrolls and household employee, household employment are outstripping the, the trend in pre-recessionary periods by a healthy margin. So a sign, a very clear sign that we're not in recession today and coupled with the yield curve chart, 
a pretty good sign that we're at least not on the doorstep of a recession. The risks are undeniably high. The risks are rising as the Fed continues to push short-term interest, rate, interest rates higher. But we're not quite there yet to where the risks are yet overwhelming. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for walking us through the key pages from the NMI for Q4 2022. I know a lot of work was put into this report. In summary, for our audience, what message do you think our readers will take away from this quarter's NMI? I think there, there are a couple of key messages here. First, we're, we're, we're not quite in an economic downturn just yet. The risk of a downturn, however, is growing as the Fed continues to tighten aggressively. But as we detail in the financial market section of, of the deck, the markets have already priced in a lot of bad news. The stock market is down considerably from its peak in, in January, pricing in a lot more bad news than it typically does at this stage of the cycle. The bond market has sold off much more than is typical, at least in recent decades, in, in advance of economic downturns and during Fed tightening cycles. We've already priced in a fairly dire outcome a risk of a dire outcome is rising, but a lot of that bad news is already priced in to asset prices. Well, thank you, Brian, for providing such informative perspective on the economy and the financial markets. And to our audience, you can view the full report by visiting nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. It's a great document you can share with others as well. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast to receive notifications when each and every new episode is released. For Nationwide Market Insights, this is Brian Kirk. The information provided by Nationwide Economics is general in nature and not intended as investment or economic advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. Additionally, it does not take into account any specific investment objectives, tax, or financial condition or particular needs of any specific person. The economic and market forecasts reflect our opinion as of the date of this report and are subject to change without notice. These forecasts show a broad range of possible outcomes. Because they are subject to high levels of uncertainty, they will not reflect actual performance. We obtain certain information from sources deemed reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or fairness. Nationwide and the Nationwide N and Eagle are service marks of the Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Copyright 2022 nationwide.